Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Azoff for the truth for man's journey to find it. August the 19th, 2015. We're going to play a previous recording and interview of Dave McGowan. Uh, I had a chance to talk finally with Dave. I'm really thrilled about this. He's one of my heroes. And uh, undeservingly, I'm going to have the opportunity to interview him uh, this Friday. 9 p.m. Eastern, and uh, we're going to listen to uh, this interview. Uh, it's called uh, on YouTube, uh, David McGowan, a Murder, Mystery, Mayhem, Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. Uh, Dave has done an amazing amount of research for a guy in his position, just an average show with a God-given ability and talent to research critically think. He wrote three books. The most, the most recent one is Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, the Laurel Canyon. Uh, I wish my eyes work. I'm going to see an eye doctor tomorrow. Uh, Covert Ops. And Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream by David McGowan. Then he also has his book up. Uh, a program to kill, uh, the politics of serial murders, uh, derailing democracy, the America, the America, the media, and I don't want you to see. And his other book, Understanding the F Word. <clears throat> you can find that uh, on his website. I, uh, you can go to his Facebook page if you want to know more about the weird scenes inside the canyon. Um, he's got a Facebook page for that. Then he's got, um, we're going to talk about this again, uh, his uh, website, the Center to the Center for an Informed America. You can find a lot of great articles and ways of getting his books. I strongly recommend that you get his books. You look at his, his uh uh, what am I saying here? A website that you um, support this man. He has done things that most people were not willing to do in the position that he has been in in his life, being a blue collar worker, a guy who's been struggling along with life like the rest of us, un- not privileged, and making the most of it. We had a great conversation, and I wish we could have made it longer, but I had my son. And so we're just going to be doing some recordings here. He's and uh, won't we'll talk much. But anyways, you can go to thinkofbeat.com and look at uh, Dave McGowan's uh, page that they got there for him. Um, and it's called Dave McGowan. They generally as well have a page for me in there. Um, you can go to look at. Uh, uh, shows that I've done with uh, 
Keith Hansen, Gordon Comstock, and Eric the Blacksmith. And now we're going to have Dave, so we can add that to it. Uh, Aid, uh, Dave's been a great contributor uh, throughout the years. See Keith Hansen, I uh, was on the Visigoth show. And uh, Dave's just done some great research. He's a round down-to-earth guy. And um, a heck of a lot smarter of a man than I am, and a lot more capable. And of course, he's going through a great challenge right now, cancer, the past three months, and uh, dealing with all that. So hopefully we'll talk about that, and I have we can commiserate, I guess, about uh, what it's like to be sick and to lose one's manhood or ego type of thing. And um, there's all, there's all these other aspects, and, and particularly, you know, I'm a guy who was a musician for 20 years, and although I was not uh, one of these idolaters and thought greatly of other musicians and never uh, really spent much time researching them, but Dave did uh, do the research and <laughs> explains a re- uh, really a, a why a lot of things are the way they are. So, And then I got my own two cents. I would certainly like to share my experience as a young man being in the punk scene, seeing how uh, the band that I was in called Majority One, uh, being influenced by the Washington, D.C. movement and the Detroit movement, the Ann Arbor movement, and how um, what happened. And that experience. But it's not all about me. So, anyways, we're going to play this uh, interview. It's a great interview. Actually, a lot of people will do a much better job of interviewing than I would ever. This, um, but um, I'm just privileged of the opportunity to just talk to a guy. I love talking to people who are just down to earth and real and are just who they are and aren't all full of pretension and all full of nonsense. So, I imagine there's times when I'm guilty of that myself. But Try not to be, uh, but I'm human, flawed, just like everybody else. So anyways, we're going to be listening to this. You can find this on, we'll see, Legal, Legal Life Freedom 1 YouTube channel. And you'll learn more about this. So, great interview. We'll probably play several great interviews of Dave. There's tons of them out there. If you want to start understanding the moon hoax, uh the corruption of the music scene that you've been exposed to, uh, how fascist the country that we live in. You know, my point, the direction that I'm taking it is a little further towards the religious aspect of it, and going maybe a little more taboo in the in, in taboo areas. But um, you know, uh, I find it fascinating. You know, um, that. How much common is so he pisses himself naked. That's okay. I don't have a problem with that. He's a man. He's right. I believe in freedom of conscience and all that. I've come to you know conclusion that I believe in high faith in Jesus Christ, but I don't have faith in religion and I don't have faith in any of the religions. And I find it how interesting independent quote unquote Christians like myself and then independent thinkers like Dave McGowan really have so much in common. And I have to be honest about it. I probably learned a heck of a lot more from him than I ever did from self-proclaimed Christians. So I don't know what to think about all that, except that that's just the reality of the situation. And I really think that this man is deserving of being heard. Not just because the fact of what he's going through these days, but because of his life, uh, lifetime of achievement 
of research and, and just his ability to critically think and to see outside the box, uh, uh, or the, you know, and to just be his own person. So I kudos to Dave McGowan, and oh my goodness, what a privilege it's going to be. And then hopefully, still, I haven't 100% sure I'm planning on it, but I would really like to have Greg Anthony on again. We can talk about what's going on September 23rd and about the papacy, the Jesuits, and all their machinations. And then it uh, looks like we're definitely going to have um, a conversation with uh, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, Hoaxbusters. My mind is blank. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Why can't I remember his name? I've like said it like a million times. I think it's because I'm so totally excited about the fact that I got a chance to talk to one of my, strangely enough, one of my heroes, um, Dave McGowan. So he's up there with uh, Gordon Comstock and uh, Keith Hansen. So Chris, of course, Chris, it's Chris from um, Hoaxbusters. Please don't take offense to that, Chris. That was not because I don't. And I can't wait to talk to Chris about it. I, it's going to be. A, I, I imagine it's going to be different for Chris because it's like somebody interviewing Chris, which is the other way around. But Chris has some great insights. I don't know if we're 100 percent on the same page and on all things, but we will find out. I do know one thing. I've listened to a lot of his shows. Just got to listening to an interview with. Uh, Jan Irving. I used to be a real big fan of Jan Irving until um, I realized that, well, I started applying trivium and critical thinking and asking the questions, and then, well, there's a lot of holes in his approach. I think the biggest thing is that for some reason people don't want to deal with the religion. (laughs) They just don't want to touch it. Uh, it's just too volatile of a question of a, or aesthetic matters. So, I guess that's maybe my role. I don't know. Anyways, let's listen to this great interview. It's about two hours, and uh, we'll probably listen to a few more before uh, Dave comes on. Then they'll have a, a, a deep and meaningful conversation support Dave and uh, talk about what he's going through and about his work. And uh, there's a lot of people out there that care about Dave. And unfortunately, a lot of times it takes something like what Dave's going through for that to come to fruition or to the surface. And I don't think that's right. That's an example of the human condition that we have a hard time loving those who are um, critical thinkers that are open-minded or willing to challenge the norms and values and the sacred cows of our lives. We're not willing to do that until it seems to be too late. Here we go.
legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. Covert Ops and the Dark Heart Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. Before we jump into that, 
tell listeners a bit about your background, how you became interested in this particular uh, area, and of course you're, you're going to be a music fan, otherwise you wouldn't have written this book. So just how you, you know what your journey into music in the first place was. Yeah, I am a lifelong music fan. Um, you know, I was alive during the period that's you know chronicled in the book, which is basically from say the mid '60s to the mid '70s, which was really the peak of the uh, of the Laurel Canyon scene, the peak years. And uh, but I was very young at the time. Uh, I was born in 1960, so I was just a lad when all this stuff uh, went down. But you know, it was. Uh, I was alive and well and, and living just literally just, you know, like 20 miles from uh, from where this all happened. But uh, unfortunately, I was much too young to be aware of or involved in the scene. But, um, you know, I, I kind of came of age in the uh, in the 70s, so to speak. But I was very much uh, in tune with the, uh, the music of that earlier era. And I always kind of felt like I was a... Uh, I was a kind of a, a hippie uh, that, that had the misfortune of being born a decade too late because, you know, had I been born earlier and reached my teen years uh, during that period, I, I absolutely would have been a part of that scene and, uh, you know, felt, felt, felt very much uh, that that, you know, it was hugely influential, the music of that era, you know, it really provided the the soundtrack to my formative years, so to speak. So uh, I've always been a big fan of that music in, in that whole era and the, and the scene that produced that music. And, um, but, uh, you know, m- most of, uh, most of my reading and writing is, is on much, much darker, uh, quote unquote, conspiratorial type topics. And, uh, this one I really kind of fell into by, by accident, um, as, as is explained in the, uh, the preface to the book, um, <clears throat> I was, I was on vacation and, uh, really kind of wanted to escape from all the insanity, you know, that, that occupies my, my day to day life. And, uh, I kind of viewed this as, as a, as an opportunity to sort of, uh, just tune out all of the, the madness and, uh, just, you know, have a nice, enjoyable vacation read that would conjure up all of these fond memories of uh, of my childhood and all these great songs that, that helped shape that childhood and adolescence. And instead, as I was, you know, reading through this book, which was Michael Walker's Laurel Canyon, which is a very, a very mainstream treatment of, uh, of the scene, all these alarm bells kept going off, you know. It was just, just uh, it was just, just, all these, you know, war, these uh, signals going off left and right, telling me that there was, you know, far more to the story than what was being told in the book. And uh, so I ended up just uh, diving headlong into that whole scene and uh, just devouring everything that I could find that had been written about it in books and magazines and web posts and newspaper articles and just everything I could get my hands on. And uh, slowly, bit by bit, pieced together sort of a alternative version uh that's quite at odds with the the mainstream version of uh you know how that how that scene played out and how it came to be and and uh you know what kind of influence it wielded and whatnot the time period you mentioned that people are thinking about anything at all they'll be thinking summer of love flowers in their hair war anti-war protests all the rest of it and they're probably thinking san francisco but laurel canyon is in california and what we're really talking about here is in and around L.A. So 
set the scene for us, basically, however you care to, in terms of geography or the background, you know, where these people came from, because, of course, we're not talking about that many L.A. natives here. So just for people who aren't familiar, just take us, forget San Francisco, let's head to L.A. and just set it out first. You know, that's, that's one of the things that, that, that first fascinated me about this story is that um, even the mainstream version is, is not that well known. And as you say, anytime, uh, anytime the conversation turns to the 60s and, you know, hippies and flower children and, and that whole, uh, you know, countercultural movement that was going on, um, you know, and it was, it was a very... Uh, a very eventful decade to say the least, you know, you, you had the whole hippie movement and the flower children and all this music. You had the, the black Panther movement and women's rights movement and the anti-war movement and just all kinds of uh, people pushing for, for social change in various ways. And, and uh, you had the inner cities exploding in riots, you know, in Watts and Detroit and whatnot. And, you had, uh, you, had, you had very beloved leaders being picked off left and right, uh, you know, the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And um, it was just, you know, this, it was just a very, uh, just a, a decade that was just uh, really unlike any other. And uh, the first, first decade of my, my existence. And um, so, so uh, very fascinating to me, but, uh, when the discussion, any time the discussion comes up with that, most, you know, 99% of the people, their minds are immediately going to hate Ashbury up in San Francisco, which is, is largely viewed as the, uh, the birthplace and really the, uh, sort of the cultural center of that whole hippie movement. And, uh, interestingly enough, the, um, the reality is that it actually began right, right down here in LA a couple of years before, um, the uh, parallel scene up in San Francisco and uh, the scene down here pr- produced far more of the music and, and uh, far more, you know, in- influential, uh, you know, spokesperson, so to speak, for for that youth generation than did uh, San Francisco. And, uh, you know, uh, it was here that the uh, what became known as the hippies really first began as far as the hairstyles and the clothing styles and the attitude and, you know, that whole that whole look and feel that it uh, would eventually become known as hippies, uh, all actually started in L.A. And, um, and uh, you know, yet strangely enough, uh, very few people, even native Angelinos, are, are aware of that. And um, it, it all happened in, in uh, one little isolated canyon in the Hollywood Hills, which is a... Uh, <coughs> A small uh, mountain range that separates the uh, the west side of LA from the San Fernando Valley, and uh, there's a number of, of canyons that snake through there that provide uh, access, you know, from from the city into the valley. And Laurel Canyon was was one of those, and uh, <laughs> very kind of an isolated, uh, very isolated geographically. There's kind of really only one main road going through there, so kind of only one way in and out, and uh, it has a completely different look and feel than the rest of LA, which is, you know, mostly concrete, asphalt, and glass. Uh, whereas Laurel Canyon is, is very heavily wooded and, and very, it's got a very rustic kind of a country feel to it. And um, so it's this uh, very just kind of unique and, and uh, you know, socially and geographically isolated uh, neighborhood in LA that, uh, 
for for about a ten year period there, from the mid '60s to the mid '70s, just became the locus of this this uh, the whole uh, music and countercultural movement, and just produced a just a staggering number of bands and uh, singer songwriters that that poured out of there in, in a very short amount of time. Everyone from uh, yeah, I, I always leave out like half of them because there's so many, but uh, you had The Doors, you had Arthur Lee in Love, The Mamas and the Papas, The Turtles, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, uh, John Kane Steppenwolf. Uh, later on, you had Crosby, Stills, and Nash, The Eagles. Uh, you had a whole bunch of singer-songwriters, James Taylor, Carol King, uh, Judy Sill. Uh, Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell, uh, just Randy Newman, and just just a, just an amazing array of uh, musical talent. People that were destined to become these superstars, you know, many of whom are still the larger-than-life uh, icons uh, to this day. You know, people like Jim Morrison and and uh, you know various others, Frank Zappa. And, David Crosby and Stephen Stills and, you know, just on and on and on. Um, just, just this amazing array of, uh, of talent that, that sort of spontaneously gathered there and, uh, and produces this, uh, just massive body of, 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 uh, musical work. And, um, and really kind of emerged as sort of the spokesman and, and the leaders of, of that, uh, that whole hippie, uh, the whole 60s, uh, you know, youth uh, countercultural movement. As you say, you mentioned a few of the names there. I mentioned a few others in my introduction. We, there's no way we can begin to explore all these individual stories, but we will get to some of the more interesting characters later on. For now, a place to start for me, what, the first thing that piqued my interest and kind of like, hmm, what's going on here, is the family backgrounds of so many of these people. I mean, one of the whole points about your book is drawing together strands of coincidence and saying, look, this, this, there's something going on here, or if there isn't, there probably should be, because statistically, what are the odds? So tell folks a little bit about what you turned up when you started looking into the backgrounds, family backgrounds of a lot of these people. To an amazing uh, degree, uh, the, the, uh, so many of these people, particularly the ones who emerged as, as sort of the front men for the band or, or the, the biggest stars that came out of the bands, uh, seemed to come to, from a, to an overwhelming degree from, a, from families that are either career military or, or uh, military intelligence. Um, just it's it's uh, it's really mind-boggling really how many of them you know uh beginning with jim morrison who was the son of a of a navy admiral a very high-ranking navy admiral and and not just any navy admiral but the one who was a very much a key figure in uh what became known as the tonkin gulf incident which was when uh U.S. Uh, warships patrolling the Gulf of Tonkin uh, supposedly came under fire from uh, North Vietnamese troops, and and uh, which really uh, provided the the catalyst for for the massive escalation of the Vietnam War, and led immediately to the passing of the uh, Tonkin Gulf Resolution and the introduction of uh, ground troops into that quagmire, which then ultimately resulted in 
the deaths of some 60,000 Americans and, and untold millions of Vietnamese and Cambodians and Laotians and just laid waste to uh, <clears throat> to that entire part of the world pretty much. And um, the Tonkin Gulf incident and, and the uh, Tonkin Gulf resolution were, were the key uh the key points that, that, that really got that, that conflict going. And uh, Jim Morrison's father was the commander of the ships involved in that incident and therefore was a very much a key participant in uh, sort of choreographing that whole incident that, that led to this massive ex- escalation of the war. And, um, and, and, and that happens like, virtually simultaneously with his son emerging out of Laurel Canyon on the Sunset Strip as this sort of larger-than-life icon of the anti-war crowd. So you had this very curious, uh, very curious, uh, you know, juxtaposition here of the, the father uh, being one of the main people involved in in really getting the ball rolling on the war at the same time that the sun is, is emerging on the scene as the, uh, as one, as one of the icons of the anti-war generation. And, uh, and that pattern just follows, you know, right down the line, uh, Frank Zappa, you know, father was a chemical warfare engineer originally working out of the Edgewood arsenal, the infamous Edgewood arsenal. And, uh, and as we know, there was there was a considerable amount of chemical warfare going on in Vietnam, although it was not labeled as such. But you know, we we just dumped untold tons of you know napalm and Agent Orange and white phosphorus and every other every other kind of thing on those poor people. And and uh, you know, here here was uh, there was another icon of the anti-war crowd whose father was was very likely instrumental in. in you know, coming up with uh, all of those uh, weapon systems and and and, and uh, you know and just right on down the line, you know, when John Phillips, you know, same kind of background. He comes from his uh, his father was a career uh, Marine Corps officer, and um, not only that, but his mother, his sister, and his first wife were all career employees of the defense department so i mean everyone in his family pretty much he was just surrounded uh by military and intelligence personnel and uh you know david crosby his father as well stephen stills you know as, as you go through the list it's very hard to find someone who emerged as as one of the biggest biggest stars of that scene that the names that endure to this day uh who doesn't who did not uh, come from that family background. Um, it's just, it, it's amazing, really, <laughs> the deeper you get into it. Uh, you know, Jackson Brown was, was born on a, a military base in in, uh, in uh, post-Germany. Uh, all three guys from the band America were, uh, were Air Force rats and first met and got together on an Air Force base where all of their officer fathers were stationed and, um, just, just on and on and on. It's, it's just, it's remarkable really how many of them fit that pattern. And, you know, if, if it's just a few here and there, you can, you can write it off as a coincidence or as a lot of people, uh, tend to want to do, um, 
they kind of view it as sort of a natural reaction from these people in terms of uh, rebelling against, you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, you know, doesn't that make perfect sense that uh, <laughs> these would be the first people to rebel against their, you know, the values of their parents? And, and there is some merit to that, but when you look down the list and, and see just how many of <laughs> of them there are that fit that pattern and how few fall outside the pattern. And, you know, at some point it just, it becomes a little bit much for me to just write off it as coincidence or, or you know, a natural uh, rebellion by these, by these kids. And, um, cause I mean, we're talking about a time, you know, in, in the late, you know, mid to late sixties where, Every kid in the country wanted to pick up a guitar and draw out his hair and, and front a rock band. You know, I mean, it was just uh, it was just in the spirit of the times. And of course, you know, not everyone has the talent to do that, but you know, a certain percentage of people do. And, and the question then becomes, you know, were these military all these military brats? Are they the only ones who had the the talent to <laughs> to make it, or were they just the ones? who the industry chose to, you know, sign and, and promote into superstardom. And to me, it's got to be the latter because it's just very hard for me to believe that, you know, that it was only the kids from that background who just happened to, you know, have that, the musical chops to, to make it uh, to that level of stardom. And also, as speaking as a, an ex-musician myself, and also, I've got ears. As you pointed out, a lot of these guys weren't that good. I mean, yeah, you look at someone like Frank Zappa, is phenomenally good. But a lot of these uh, guys were, like, really sloppy. And we'll come on to a bit more about that later. But it's not at all obvious that these are the people that should have been selected if you were a, you know, record company chief. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, a lot of the bands had a very sort of contrived look, you know, nature. Um more like, more like they were cast than just sort of, you know, a bunch of guys who shared a musical vision that came together to form a band. Uh, you know, the first band out of the gate, The Birds, was, you know, possibly the most obvious, where uh, two of the guys had had literally never played their instruments before. Uh, the Chris Hillman, who was hired as the bass player, was a, uh, a bluegrass mandolin player. And... Um, the guy hired to play drums, what was his name, uh, Clark, uh, Michael Clark, he'd never never played the drums in his life. I think he, he played the bongo drums, but never you know, never actually held a set of drumsticks in his hand. And yet these were the guys who were you know, selected to provide the entire rhythm section of what was the very first, uh, folk rock band, the band that really set off this whole folk rock revolution and pioneered that the, the sound of uh, you know electrifying the the songs of uh, people like Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and whatnot. And uh, you know it's it's just it hardly it hardly seems like a grassroots sort of a, a coming together of, of you know of people who shared a musical vision. You know, I mean, the way you normally picture a band coming together, it wasn't really like that at all. It was, you know, you had one guy in the band who was actually a, a skilled musician, which was uh, Roger McGuinn, uh, the lead guitarist, 
And then the entire rhythm section has never played their instruments before. And uh, Gene Clark and and uh, David Crosby were, you know, could barely play the guitar. Um, you know, they're, they're so consequently all of their parts other than the Gwyns in the studio were played by studio musicians, you know, just like the monkeys. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, these, these bands were uh, very uh, Milli Vanilli-ish, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, they, you know, they, they were they were chosen for their look more so than, than, and some of them did, you know, ultimately develop uh, musical ability over the years. But um, initially, at least, you know, I mean, these, these were people who were kind of being cast which, again, raises the question of, you know, why these particular people? Uh, you know, there were, there were talented musicians to be had, you know, but, uh, but instead they, they decided to, to, you know, go with, uh, with people who literally had never picked up their instruments before. So, um, yeah, you know, you, you, you add that to, the, to, the, to the, the interesting family background that, that some, a lot of these people had, and it really raises the question of, you know, why them? Why, why did they, why were they chosen to uh, become these huge uh, international stars? We mentioned earlier about most of these people, if not all of them, not being L.A. natives, yet they all descend on L.A., which was not a music scene hub in the U.S. at that point. And not only do they descend on L.A., but they de- it's not even downtown L.A. You know, it's this, as you say, leafy suburb. Um, what it all reminded me of, and you talk about this in the book, how they all seem to come from all these different places. It was almost like, and this is just my own silly imagination running away, but it was almost like a load of sleepers that had been activated with a code word or something. Now it was the time to go to L.A. Someone in the book says, you know, we went over there like lemmings. Yeah, Neil, Neil Young was quoted as saying, "Yeah, he said we we didn't we didn't know why we were going. We just all went like lemmings." I mean, he literally, yeah, he literally said that 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 uh, they didn't, you know, yeah, we were just, you know, the Pied Piper was calling. Um, yeah, it was very odd because uh, you know L.A. was not known as the main hub of music. At the, you know, it is now, and that's largely because of Laurel Canyon. That, that's a you know one thing that people don't don't really understand. You know, I mean, to to people now looking back, they say, well, why not come to L.A.? You know, this is where you come to be a, a star in the music field. But that that wasn't really the case in those days. You know, there were. There were three main hubs. Detroit was kind of the, the hub of the Motown sound, and, and Nashville was the uh, country music hub, and New York was actually the hub of popular music. And, uh, you know, L.A. was just sort of uh, an also-ran. And um, so there was no real compelling reason for these people to gather in, in L.A. at that time and gather so quickly, you know. I mean, just literally within like a year or two, uh, it was just, dozens of acts spilling out of Laurel Canyon and uh <laughs> and again yeah there were, there was no um no particular reason for that to have for them to come to LA at all and certainly not to all congregate in this one little sort of semi remote uh you know rustic canyon perched above LA uh you know no no real compelling reason at all for that to happen and yet it did and uh, and they all arrived nearly simultaneously, and and uh, and all playing you know very similar types of music. Uh, yeah, it was 
was quite extraordinary, really, the way the, the with the speed with which it came together, and uh, you know the fact that all of these all of these people just came from all from literally all over the country, and in some cases from around the world. Quite a few came from Canada. Uh, a couple of people from Steppenwolf came all the way from uh, Germany, and uh, all all uh, all arriving in, in L.A. virtually simultaneously within you know, like I say, within like a couple of year period, they all just converged there and uh, very quickly formed bands and, and <laughs> very quickly were given contracts and provided with instruments and recording space, studio space, and. Uh, just with remarkable speed, this all came together, and all of these clubs started popping up like mushrooms all along Sunset Boulevard. So you know, I mean, as quickly as these bands were forming, they suddenly had all these venues to play at, and uh, it was just remarkable, uh, just how quickly and and well coordinated this whole effort seems to have been. Another interesting wrinkle for me is that in the Laurel Canyon facility was the Lookout Mountain Laboratory, this bizarre military installation. That was just one of those moments of like, what, you know, taken against the background, everything we've been talking about. Yeah, that was just beyond bizarre. The fact that, uh, yeah, right, right there nestled in the middle of this, uh, you know, the world's first and largest hippie commune was a very very highly classified top secret uh, Air Force intelligence installation known as Lookout Mountain Laboratories. It was uh, in operation at least through 1969 officially and by some accounts well beyond that. And so, uh, so yeah, you had this, this fully functioning covert Air Force facility right there in the middle of all of this uh, you know, budding uh, hippie slash flower children scene, uh, which again is, uh, doesn't quite seem to fit, you know. And and you know, again, it raises the question: Why is why did all these people come not just to L.A. but to this one specific neighborhood that just happened just happened to be home to this top secret military installation, you know? And all of these people coming from a largely military intelligence background just to this, you know, uh, this, this certain neighborhood in Los Angeles that happens to house a military installation. And then on top of that, you had various other military and, and political and uh, up-and-coming political figures uh, bopping around in Laurel Canyon. You had, you had both the, the future governor and lieutenant governor of the state, Jerry Brown and and Mike Kerb, which is, <laughs> Jerry Brown is still our governor to this day as we speak, which is just amazing. But uh, anyways, you had, uh, you know, Jerry Brown and Mike Kerb. You had, uh, you had one of the guiding lights of the Rand Corporation who had a home in uh, Laurel Canyon at the time where he was grooming uh, all of these followers who would later become what became known as the uh, the neocon cabal, the Project for American uh, New American Century group. Uh, they were there camping out in Laurel Canyon. Uh, you had this male prostitution ring, which when it was busted, some of the uh, operatives there claimed that their clientele included very high-ranking uh, government and law enforcement uh, figures, including J. Edgar Hoover. You know? So uh, it was a very curious mix.
mix of people, to say the least. You know, you have this, this as I said before, this sort of geographically isolated uh, and very, you know, fairly small neighborhood that had this strange mix of musicians, many of whom came from the military or military intelligence background, co-mingling around this Air Force installation and with all of these up-and-coming political figure or already established political figures uh, all, all you know, grouped together in this one small location that just happened to become the birthplace of the hippie and flower child movements. So, I mean, that's a whole lot to write off as coincidence, you know, to, to my mind anyway. Yeah, and of course, this is around the time when music was starting to get political and a lot of people will associate a lot of the artists that we're talking about here and other figures as well, as you mentioned, as being synonymous with the anti-war movement, the course, in Vietnam going on around this time. And that was very unpopular with a lot of people. But as it turns out, the anti-war movement were up and running, thank you very much, before all this hippie thing started. And in fact, it seems that some of the established anti-war people, if I can call them established, you know what I mean, were quite hostile to the hippie thing because at, at the very least it was kind of they were aware of the fact it might discredit them somehow with the, the general population um, or even media that might have been sympathetic towards them and for me that's very interesting because in people's minds it's like these were the flower children rebelling against the war but then you have this anti-war movement already up and running who are kind of like oh can you please not do that you know we're, we're fine thank you <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, that was another thing that, that uh, I found fascinating. And, and another, uh, you know, one, another one of the big misconceptions that, that most people have, including me, you know, until recently, that, you know, the first one being that the hippie movement uh, was actually a product of San Francisco when it was, in fact, a, a product initially of L.A., that, that being the, the one main misconception. And the, the other one being that people almost universally these days uh, – equate the anti-war movement and the hippies, you know, as, as one and the same. The hippies, uh, rep, you know, uh, to most people are the face of the anti-war movement of the 60s. And um, as you were saying, uh, yeah, that, that, that wasn't initially the case. Uh, it actually began, <laughs> the anti-war movement actually began on college campuses and, and was being led by very, very mainstream, very clean-cut, you know, uh, college professors and their equally, you know, clean-cut collegiate uh, students. And then suddenly the hippies came along and provided a whole new face to the anti-movement, which was a face that was completely foreign to mainstream America, you know, to uh, to the heartland, so to speak. You had these people with these crazy hairstyles and clothing styles preaching about, you know, free love and, and open drug use and, um, you know, listening to this uh, crazy music and, you know, inventing their own lingo. And, um, you know, and like I say, I grew up very much admiring that whole scene and wishing that I had been a part of it. But at the same time, I can see how that would be very, you know, very... <laughs> a very offensive face to put on the anti-war movement for many Americans at that time, you know, just coming out of the very conservative uh, 50s and and uh, suddenly you have these, these people just, 
you know, looking like they, they might as well be from Mars. And, um, you know, that uh, it, to me, that uh, seems very much like a deliberate strategy to put a, to put the most offensive face possible on the anti-war movement. And it was obviously very successful because, you know, as, as I said, uh, to this day, people equate the hippies with the anti-war movement. And, but that was not the case initially. And some of the initial leaders of the anti-war movement were, as you mentioned, were none too happy when all of these, uh, and there were even, there were, there were suspicions then that this might have been some kind of an, you know, there were people, there were quotes from people saying, well, where are these people coming from? Is this some kind of a, you know, intelligence operation? Where, 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 where are these hippies coming from? And so, yeah, there are, there are legitimate questions to be asked about, about just, you know, just how effective the, the hippies were in, and, and again, another thing is, you know, I mean, it's, 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 very commonly believed that the hippies actually succeeded in, in ending the war, but the reality is that it drug on uh, for many, many years beyond when the, when the hippies emerged on the scene. And, you know, even after four students were gunned down in, at Kent State in, like, 1970, it still drug on for, for a number of years. So, to my mind, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing that the hippies really uh, ended the war, and um, so, you know, yeah, it, it appears to me, at least, that the, the hippies really subverted what could have been a very, very effective and much more popular with, with uh, you know, mainstream America, uh, an anti-war movement that was, uh, you know, much more effective and, and much more popular across the broader spectrum had the hippies not come along when they did. Yeah, from a certain angle, it starts to look a lot like controlled opposition. And, of course, yeah. we've seen a lot of that since then. We see a lot of it today. Of course, there was never, there's never been more war than there is now, as far as I can see. And all around, you see uh, groups popping up, you know, turning uh, protests, violence, and what have you. I was going to say it's amazing how effectively, uh, yeah, any, any kind of anti-war movement uh I mean, to this day, yeah, I mean, you would think that the college campuses would just be exploding across the country, you know, I mean, there's certainly no shortage of wars to oppose, and no shortage of domestic policies to oppose either, you know, the the massive militarization of the police, and the rise of the surveillance state, and I mean, there's any number of issues that kids on campuses should be up in arms about, but you go onto a college campus these days and there's no hint of any political activism or anti-war sentiment, really. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it seems to have had a lasting impact uh, to this day that, uh, I mean, there there has not been a meaningful anti-war movement, uh, you know, since the the mid-'60s. Was it the drummer in Spinal Tap who said as long as there's the... uh sex and drugs I can live without the rock and roll (laughs) besides the rock and roll in the tale that you set out there's a lot of sex a lot of drugs to comment on the the latter specifically there seems to be mountains of cocaine and the first thing that I thought was well that's not really a hippie drug is it that's the sort of thing that you know you think of bankers and politicians and business people doing you know off the the top gold-plated toilet seats or whatever and People can do whatever they want. I'm a libertarian. You know, take whatever drugs you want, whenever you want. Enjoy yourself. Try not to hurt anyone, you know. But it struck me that 
cocaine does unpleasant things to a lot of people. You know, it's, we've got a saying in Ireland, you know, when the, the spirit goes in, the truth comes out. And drugs tend to amplify who you already are. And, and reading some of the tales in your book, it's, it's really unpleasant. You know, it's not some people in, you know, enjoying a joint or a, an LSD trip. A lot of it is just mountains of coke. And from then we get on to the sexual elements in all this. And to say it gets sorted and seedy would be an understatement. And you can't get through a page of your book virtually without some of this coming up. You know, drugs and sex are some unpleasant, frankly, combination of the two. Yeah, the uh, you know the image of the pot smoking hippie that didn't that didn't really last that long, and uh, be- before long at all, there was just a blizzard of cocaine blowing through Laurel Canyon, and uh, yeah, the, the 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 drugs quickly turned from from a you know the communal feel good uh, you know pot thing to uh, much harder and more dangerous and personality altering drugs, and the same thing happened in the hate. Um, you know, before long, you, you had uh, you know meth and pills and and uh, and much much more dangerous hallucinogens like DMT and FTP and just all kinds of stuff just flooding the streets and and you know what what began as you know peace and love and past the joint uh, very quickly morphed into a a much much darker and more dangerous and, and uh, very grim scene. This is Perhaps we should say a word about a few of the personalities. As I say, we've talked about a couple of dozen between us. There are, I don't know how many in total people you've talked about, but there's a lot. We talked about Frank Zappa earlier, and he was a very influential character. Uh, certainly musically he has been uh, over the years, uh, well, you know, before he passed away. But you know, his music lives on in a way that uh, some of the characters from this tale, their music hasn't really. But when you read certainly the version of his life that you document, it's quite dark and disturbing. Never mind his family background. It's quite dark and disturbing compared to how people might imagine him just as a, you know, as a virtuoso, super creative, you know, uh, boundary breaking guy. Yeah. He, uh, he's very authoritarian, very, um, I mean, uh, you know, people, people that worked with him, uh, tended to admire his talent, but found him, uh, all but impossible to work with. And, uh, you know, he would fire people from his band left and right. And, uh, just very demanding, very, very, um, very much of a perfectionist, very much of an authoritarian, wanted things done his way. And, um, and just spent a lot, uh, tended to isolate himself, uh, even from his family. Uh, you know, he wasn't, wasn't much of a family man to say the least. And, uh, yeah, he just doesn't doesn't really fit the image of the uh, you know the long haired uh, free thinking hippie so much. You know, he, uh, he definitely had a had a much different uh, personality uh, to say the least than, than what we would expect. Uh, you know, f- from the leaders of the youth movement of that time, and and he certainly was not alone. Uh, Arthur Lee was was also. Uh, regarded as, as quite an authoritarian figure. Uh, Stephen Stills also, who, who was uh, nicknamed the Sarge due to his uh, military bearing and, and very authoritarian manner. And these, these were people who were very, very talented, multi-talented, you know, Stills, Zappa, and, and Lee, all of them, I mean, as, as songwriters, musicians, vo- you know, vocalists, well, Frank Zappa, not a vocalist, but, uh, 
you know, producers, arrangers, uh, just, you know, they could, they, they wore all the hats and did so very well, multi-instrumentalists and, uh, and, you know, they did what they did very well, but they, uh, they were very, very controlling and, and, uh, you know, very authoritarian in their bearing, which was, Seems to have been uh, not all that uncommon. You know, John Kay with Steppenwolf fit uh, that pattern as well. And, and all these guys would, would uh, you know, like routinely just fire, you know, pretty much fire their band members at will. And, uh, you know, just, just wanted, wanted absolute control over, uh, over, over, over everything. Uh, Captain Beefheart, really, I mean, he took that to, to extremes, really, and literally kept his, band like imprisoned in a house and uh you know making them work for for uh peanuts and it's just so uh yeah if you, if you look uh you really look in, into the You know the lifestyles, not just you know, not just the family backgrounds, which is you know odd enough, but the uh, the lifestyles of these people, it's just it's just wildly out of sync with the whole peace, love, and understanding vibe that we're you know that that we we think of when we think of the '60s and, and the the hippie counterculture. I really enjoyed Captain Beefheart's music uh, when I first yeah. discovered it back when I was a student, which was like in the early '90s. But reading, I've never really gotten it. I mean, it's something you either get or you don't. I guess it's, uh, yeah. I mean, to some people it's brilliant. To other people, it's just, uh, I don't know what <laughs> how to describe it. You got to listen to it for yourself, I suppose. But anyway, go ahead. No, I just think I like I like surreal music, and I just liked his vocal delivery and his, you know, the really fucked up lyrics. But yeah, it was really disturbing to read about. I think it was Troy Bass replica that you talk about them being barricaded in this house with you know, blacked out windows and everything else. So that was kind of like, okay, you know, another perception warped forever of someone you thought yeah. you knew. Just bizarre, yeah. I mean, you know, this this is a this is an album that's you know regarded as a classic uh, regularly to this day. Appears, you know, anytime you see a list like in Rolling Stone or whatever, the hundred greatest rock albums of all time, Trout Mass replica inevitably. Uh, turns up there and uh you know i mean people just assume that it was recorded in a traditional way <laughs> you know you go into the studio and, but no it was actually done in, in a home with uh that was like a prison basically blacked out windows and, and the, the people were uh you know they were they were made to work long hours they were deprived of sleep deprived of food deprived of the ability to use the bathroom at times um, you know, basically held as prisoners, and uh, according to most of them, they they uh, 
they were never never really paid for their efforts and and received no credit, even though it was a collaborative effort that, that was put together, by, you know, through this group effort in the home. Uh, Beefheart took all sole credit as uh, you know, a composer and arranger and you know everything else, and um, and kept all the royalties pretty much to himself. So I mean, he, he basically used his band as literally like slave labor, like imprisoned slave labor. Uh, the stories are just just extraordinary. I mean, how badly <laughs> these people were treated in the process of making what what is you know today regarded as as one of the greatest rock albums of all time. But uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of pain involved you know, from a lot of people in uh, in producing that album. Well, there's a great little um, alleged anecdote that you include in the book, which I'm going to save. For the next time I'm at a party and I suddenly find myself stuck for something to say, apparently um, Captain Beefheart sold a vacuum cleaner to Aldous Huxley. I did enjoy that. That's what he claimed. Yeah, he, during his uh, early years as a, uh, you know, his, his pre-discovery years as a um, a traveling uh, door-to-door salesman, he claimed to have sold a vacuum cleaner to Aldous Huxley not long before his death. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, yeah, and Bivar was a uh, a Zappa discovery. Basically, Zappa put a lot of strange characters on the map um, through his uh, you know his own music was not very mainstream, and to this day doesn't get much radio play. But he was hugely influential among musicians, and uh, he was he was key in, in launching a lot of uh, other other acts, uh, a lot of them very strange, you know, <laughs> he, he put the, the GTOs together, which was just a bunch of, of uh, marginally underage groupies, put them together into a band, he, uh, he got, he did Beefheart, his star, well, actually, he knew Beefheart, they had gone to high school together, and uh, Antelope Valley, and uh, <laughs> where their fathers were both brought, uh, most likely uh, military personnel, because uh, that's the main main source of employment up there is the Edwards Air Force Base and, and other uh, military installations up there where they developed the stealth bomber and whatnot. And uh, so yeah, he launched Beefheart. He launched a guy named uh, by the name of uh, what, what was his name? <laughs> The crazy guy that tried to kill his mom. This guy, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, talk about questionable musical talent. Uh, yeah, he he put a what was that guy's name? I can't even remember. But anyway, yeah, he he he, uh, he put some very strange acts out there, <laughs> and, and uh, but some of them that he put out actually did become big stars. Uh, Alice Cooper was uh, one of his signings, which a lot of people don't realize that that Alice Cooper, the Alice Cooper band, was actually a a product of Laurel Canyon as well. And uh, they started out as a psychedelic band uh, known as Naz. And um, they were known, uh, they were known mostly for putting on a very theatrical show, uh, not necessarily being the best musicians on the scene. And, and Zappa signed him and, and uh, refashioned them as this uh, sort of shock rock, uh, shock rocker that, you know, the, it continues to inspire, you know, people like Marilyn Manson and whatnot to this day. So, uh, yeah, Zappa was responsible for putting some 
some very uh, unusual, uh, bringing some very unusual acts in, 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 into the mainstream, or trying to bring them into the mainstream anyway. Another very shadowy character as part of our play is, is Phil Spector, the producer, best known for his wall of sound, so-called. And not only is he, he was in the news, I can't remember, can't remember how long ago it was, but last several years anyway, you know, like pulling guns on people again, and I'm not, I'm not sure if he's in prison. I don't know what's going on with the guy, but obviously one sandwich short of a picnic. Now, he um, had his team of session musicians called the Wrecking Crew, and besides his own personal life, his uh, session musicians were significant because they played on a lot of the records. Uh, we talked earlier about yeah. some, some of these guys not being very good. So these are the sort of guys who actually played on a lot of these hit records. Yeah, they were the hired guns who, uh, who yeah, who, who put the, who provided a lot of the music of the sixties. You know, a lot, a lot of the records that, that we that you hear on the radio in daily rotation to this day on classic rock stations are not necessarily being played by the people on the album covers. Uh, a lot of it was done in the early days, particularly uh, by by studio musicians, specifically, particularly the Wrecking Crew, who were this regarded as like the best to this crack team of studio musicians who could pretty much play anything. And, uh, you know, they recorded for the Beach Boys, for the Birds, for the Mamas and the Papas, for I mean, just an array of uh, of uh, these bands, the Turtles, and just, uh, you know, a whole, a whole, a whole slew of... Uh, of, of artists or, or, or bands that uh, initially at least did not really have the musical chops to uh, to lay down these these recordings in the studio and yeah so uh, yeah the Wrecking Crew uh, and I actually have a quote which didn't make it into the book from um, from a, a more contemporary drummer and I don't remember who it was uh, some guy from some band from from quite a few years back who who, who said uh, in an interview he said yeah I, I was I was actually absolutely floored to discover that my ten favorite drummers of all time were actually one guy who <laughs> 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 had played all of these different drum parts for for uh, all of these different bands. And uh, so, yeah, they uh, they provided a lot of a lot of a lot of the, the particularly the early in the early years. Um, they they were the guys who were actually uh, playing them the music that was recorded on the albums. Phil Spector is in prison, by the way, which uh, which really kind of amazes me. It's it's very rare that um, a celebrity uh, murder case is successfully uh, prosecuted. You know, um, we, we've kind of, kind of become accustomed to uh, you know seeing people like OJ and Robert Blake and whatnot, uh, you know, uh, walk free. And uh, but Phil Spector was in fact uh, convicted actually of killing that. Uh, aspiring actress gal in the lobby of his home, the entrance to his home. I can't remember her name, Lana something, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's doing time. He's, uh, he's, I'm not sure what prison he's in, but he, there was a picture of him actually that, uh, surfaced.
Sorry, folks. I think somebody sneaked attacked me. This time it wasn't. Uh, yes, it was my son Chase. Who decided? No, it wasn't Chase. Maybe it was Chase. Um. Anyways, we'll have to do a part two on this. I gotta be dad. So. Anyways. Interesting interesting interview so far. I'll just have to do part two later, I guess. That's really disappointing. <laughs> Anyways, it was a great interview. But, you know what? Sometimes man has responsibilities. So. Uh, once again, that was Dave McGowan. And uh, what a great guy he is, really. He's real generous, actually. <laughs> He'd be willing to be on my show. I appreciate that. So, looking forward to Friday. So, anyways, God bless. Take care. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.